Welcome back to the Wellbeing Economy podcast. In this series, we're discussing the future of education and how a better built learning environment can improve the well-being of pupils, students, teachers and support staff. My name's Catherine Seaton and I'm the concept developer of education and well-being at SAS International. Joining me today are Angela Spangler, Education, Government and Healthcare Sector Lead at the International Wellbuilding Institute, and Marcus Bernhard, Chief Commercial Officer at Abrism Group and former head teacher. I'm going to dive straight in with the pandemic questions. Lockdown forced most schools to change strategy and switch to a completely or partially digital system to teach and stay engaged with parents. Is this something you'd like us to keep? Or do we need to go back to the way we were? I'm going to start with you, please, Angela. Thank you, Catherine. Well, the transition to remote education certainly introduces unique opportunities to flip the classroom and deliver content and curriculum at the pace of the students. We definitely saw a phenomenon where those students who had access to technology or access to broadband internet certainly were able to keep up and maintain the pace of learning far better than students who were lacking either technology devices or access to the internet. So I think it's really important to get students back into the classroom where that is safe in order to allow them to really benefit from the social and emotional learning that takes place in the classroom by making connections with their educators and with other peers. And Marcus, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, the future of technology within within schools at the moment? I fully agree with Angela. And I think we've learned quite a few lessons in the past 18, 19, 20 months. And one thing that stands out for me as well, in addition, is that we've learned that we have obviously got our neurotypical and our non-neurotypical children. And the hybrid and distance learning environment, it turns out, has also worked really well and in some cases even better for some children. So I think there's a point to be made about staying really agile and taking those lessons and diversifying the offer that a school will give in general and that for some subgroups of children, the distance learning will actually prove better. I'm afraid you're going to have to explain to me what's the what do you mean by neurotypical for our listeners and and for myself? (laughs) Yes. So we have children with learning difficulties. We have children with autism. So a diverse range of individuals. And for example, some children on the Asperger's or autistic spectrum, for them, it was really helpful to be in the um, distance learning environment and work via the screen. They were able to interact in some cases, for example, with much more confidence. And it's for those kind of diverse children that this has been a a real positive and a learning curve also for educationalists. I'm glad you brought that up, Marcus. I think allowing students to pace themselves and really spend extra time with content that might be more challenging or accelerate and advance through content at their own pace really provides a unique opportunity where then you can treat the place-based learning that takes place within the classroom to focus on developing those social skills around 
team building and communication and picking up on social cues and just understanding how to work in a system as opposed to being an independent learner. I think that that's a really great point. We talk quite often and certainly it's come up recently about closing the gap and it can be closing the gap to do with funding between different schools and the resources that they have available to them as well as closing the gap socially between those who have and those who have not. What needs to be done to ensure that all children and young people, so we're also talking about those in in higher education as well, what needs to be done to make sure that they have the resources that they need to succeed and to thrive in, in education? Yes, from my experience, I can really see how K-12 and universities and, and colleges are all doing the best they can that on the return to face-to-face or a slightly different hybrid model as we start to open up in certain countries, that they're really focusing on doing what they can to close the gap. So I think from the institution and teaching point of view, a lot is being done. I think what we really need to focus on is that the money and the resources are there, which I think is more governmental challenge to support those institutions on their journey, especially for those disadvantaged who haven't got the best schools and the best support. And Angela already mentioned broadband access, things like that is where it started to fall apart for some families. And and there'll be a lot of work to do. And my worry is not within the organizations. I can see that my fellow teachers will all be working really hard with the children and with the families, but funding will be required. And the same question to you, Angela, what resources do you think are needed in the education sector right now? That is such a challenging question to tackle, but I agree. Having access to adequate funding and knowing how to utilize the funds that governments are setting aside. In the U.S., the International Well-Building Institute has been focused on a report that we just launched that detailed the state of all schools throughout the country and all kind of outlying territories. And this report was done in collaboration with the 21st Century School Fund and the National Council on School Facilities. And what we found was that there's an $86 billion spending gap in terms of what schools actually need when it comes to capital improvements and maintenance and operations. And this is happening every single year. Unfortunately, my worldview and my focus area right now has been really U.S. focused, but What we find here is that funding becomes available after a natural disaster or after some sort of crisis, but usually it only covers about 1% of what the schools actually need. So schools are carrying huge deferred maintenance logs and tons of debt to just get the school functional and operational. And in light of everything that we've learned over these past two years, the actual space where we spend our time has profound impacts on not only health outcomes of the people who occupy those spaces, but also the learning outcomes for the students within the space. It's really important to get things like air quality and acoustics and views and access to nature right so that students have the opportunity to show up and thrive. That ties in nicely with my next question, 
A recent study revealed that one in six children aged between five and 15 are affected by mental health issues. And in addition to that, teachers have been identified as being some of the most at risk of burnout. Is this only down to the pandemic or have we needed to change the system, the education system for a while? Absolutely. I think this has been a huge issue across not only K through 12, but higher education as well. We learned relatively quickly how important educators were to not only caring for our children, but educating them and keeping them safe. Schools have long been the centers of communities. And it's really important to think about essentially all of the ways that you can support mental health, whether that's through having things like flexible policies, whether that's promoting health benefits to keep people feeling physically active, feeling like they are able to cope with the stresses of life, not only the stresses of this pandemic, but just life in general, and really able to feel rejuvenated by the spaces that they occupy. There was a study in the U.S. that focused on access to nature, which we call biophilia. And we know that humans have this profound affinity for nature. It it does things like reduce your stress level. It improves your focus. It makes it easier to think about things like simple arithmetic and learning. And they did this study in hospitals, actually, where they had patients in rooms with views to nature, outdoor, either green spaces or blue spaces where they could actually see a natural environment versus those who were receiving a view that was more of like a cityscape or just another building next door or no views at all. And those who had views to nature actually had much faster healing times and were less likely to get readmitted to the hospital. So if you translate that and kind of shift the focus area, thinking about schools, if you can do something that's going to not only keep the educators feeling more calm and more focused and more alert and more awake throughout the day, but do something that also improves all of those measures for students, you're just creating a more harmonized environment that is holistically looking at mental health, physical health, and social connections. I think we all agree that both the children as well as the staff require support in this area. It is not, like I said earlier, my colleagues in in education, not wanting to help. It is about the pressures that come onto the teaching profession. I think the students and children will be in an improved situation as soon as they can access the school again and meet friends and play in the playground. You know, research suggests that, like Angela already said, being outdoors, forest schools, outdoor play is really important for their development, but also for their mental health. And on the teacher side, it's really important to also identify where these pressures are coming from. And very often we will find that the pressures are not coming from the interaction with the children and the students and the teaching process. We will see that the perceived stress comes from bureaucracy, marking, bookkeeping, student tracking, filling Excel sheets with data, on a daily basis to show student progress for inspections and school reporting. And 
I think on that side, there is a rethink necessary generally. Staff need support in this area as well. And luckily, on the other hand, we now have education technology advancing through the use of AI to the extent that it is now a really credible solution to support teaching and particularly homework so that students can do exercises on a computer, be monitored by artificial intelligence, be marked by artificial intelligence. And the teacher, instead of having to mark 15, 20, 25 students in a class, can see on the dashboard in the end where in the class the strengths and weaknesses lie, who got what right, who got what wrong, who's possibly guessing a little bit, and therefore is more back in the teaching chair planning the next lesson rather than marking because the pure effect of marking and finding out whether someone was right or not in itself has zero value. What the teacher needs is the data to plan the next day. And that's where education technology is really now advancing. And I'm really positive that that will have a great positive impact on the teaching profession and also on the mental health side, taking some of those pressures away. I completely agree on that note. I'm a school governor. And in a recent meeting that we mm -hmm. had, the teachers commented that having the virtual parents evening not only was much easier for them and made them feel, you know, particularly with COVID restrictions and those sorts of things, feel safe, but also that they had higher engagement from parents, which is actually, I think, really positive that mm -hmm. more parents are able to participate and comment and take part in school life because virtual meetings are more flexible to working hours, take the pressures of childcare in the evenings away, you know, those sorts of things. So I agree. I do think that there's a good, uh, there's a blend of technology within the classroom is, is actually required. I fully agree with that. And even more so, that type of interaction is also meaningful interaction and exchange and moves us away from parents firing emails and questions at the teacher just just through emails or you know parent whatsapp and facebook groups and kind of emotional momentum developing in all those non-meaningful interactions that also add to the pressures of the teacher throughout the day i mean if you're a primary school teacher and you've done your first lesson and you check your computer and you see you've had 10 messages from 10 different parents asking questions or making remarks those pressures can be huge but meaningful interaction proper meetings over the virtual media I mean there's a little bit of a more professional distance between the parent and the teacher and i can see that that feels safer also for the teacher regardless of covid and it will be meaningful interaction that leads to something. The teacher can support the family and the family is able to communicate with the teacher to support the child or the student. Absolutely. Is there anything, Marcus, that you would like to see in terms of changes to the physical learning environment? Our schools, particularly in the UK, a number of them still date back to the 60s. Some of them, I know my school goes back <laughs> even longer than that, my old school. Um, is there anything that you think needs to change physically to our education infrastructure? Yeah, that's a really good one. Angela is going to have a bit to say on that one, I, I bet. But I would say there's there's so much research now going into building light, sound, air quality, filtration and circulation of air. And this is particularly important, again, because of COVID. And then also we've mentioned now two or three times already the outdoor spaces, the outdoor play, the forest schools, all those environments are really important. And 
research shows that they support the learning and the development of the child academically as well as socially and emotionally. And so I think there's quite a journey still ahead of us. And as you rightfully say, many schools will be dated buildings. It doesn't really matter that much, in my view, whether that's 150 years or whether that dates back to the 50s and 60s. They both will have their respective benefits, but they also will both have their downsides. And then, of course, overarching a big topic right now and will remain a big topic is sustainability. So while we create these environments, the built environment will also have to change and not only improve for the learner, but become more sustainable. I love that you said that. I agree on all fronts. I think this gives me kind of a unique opportunity to talk about some of the work that we do at the International Wellbuilding Institute. We have created an evidence-based building certification system that looks at basically this whole entire encyclopedia of best practices around design and construction and maintenance and operations and policies that schools can implement to do things like support, you know, the mental health of the educators and the students and the admin who occupy those buildings. I would encourage people to check out some of the resources online at wellcertified.com in building a scorecard and looking at what it is that your school is already doing really well on this measure. I tend to agree the age of the building shouldn't have as much of an impact if you are meeting the types of performance thresholds that we know are important to support health and development and learning outcomes. So I think two of the most important for this conversation that we're having today are looking at things like improving the air quality in a space, whether you do that by increasing the supply of outdoor air, increasing ventilation rates, introducing HEPA-based filters. There are so many ways to tackle improving air quality that we essentially recommend what that threshold should be and then allow projects all over the world to really introduce the best intervention to get to that best, healthiest outcome. Another really important area, since we have focused in here on mental health, thinking about the types of finishes that you have in a space, the types of furniture, the types of surfaces, all of that really influences the acoustic properties within the space. We know that sounds can be particularly distracting for all learners, whether they're neurodivergent or not. That is a really important, like to have a distraction-free zone. I've talked to the heads of school facilities before who have talked about the cacophony of children running down the hallway in between class periods and how having hard surfaces and surfaces where noise is just bouncing around really increases the stress levels of everyone within that space. But then when you think about quieter zones or soft seating, other types of acoustical treatments, just how that can bring down the noise levels and introduce a space that's a lot more comfortable to be in for longer periods of time. 
I suppose this ties in really to to my last question and uh, Marcus you did you did touch on it and it's really what can schools do to be more sustainable Angela I love this question our first CEO of the International Well Building Institute is Rick Fadrizi and he was the CEO and founder of LEAD which many may be familiar as a sustainability focused rating system that focuses on planetary health. At IWBI, we believe that the health of our people and the health of our planet are inextricably linked. So all of the recommended strategies within WELL are really aimed at this conversation around human sustainability. So I've mentioned that this is kind of a holistic or multidisciplinary approach to considering how buildings and organizations can impact human health outcomes. I think the best way that schools can be more sustainable moving forward is to take that inventory of the best practices of the achievements that they're making and start to think systematically as you're going through and making updates. Maybe you're thinking about improving your cleaning protocol in light of this pandemic. Before just going back to the same vendor that you've constantly been using and ordering the same products that you've constantly been using, think about those products in terms of how they're going to impact the health and the indoor environmental air quality and how they're going to impact from a sustainability perspective, the health of our planet. And just work your way through updates when you're doing renovations, when you're updating old buildings, when you're building or constructing a new school facility. Think about how each of the decisions that you're making from the furniture that you're procuring to the products and the processes to the way that you're going to attract the best educators to want to come and teach within that space or attract families within to that district. Always having that mindset on creating an environment that's promoting the health of the human occupants of that space will do wonders for improving the life cycle of the building. Yes, and maybe just a slightly different angle there, if we focus again on the on the staff and on the students and on the children. I mean, vaccination schemes have been around for a very long time now, and they've been very proactive in looking after people's health. And we've seen recently that regular testing regimes with COVID have been more reactive. And I think there's something to be said for for health services and healthcare providers now developing into a more proactive direction. And I think we'll see more health services offering antibody screenings and being able to address immune deficiencies proactively. And therefore, I think there's a lot to be said for the medical services and the healthcare profession advancing and being able to more proactively ensure a healthy individual. And therefore, when we all come together in a group, a healthy group environment. I'm really grateful for your thoughts on the subjects that we've had, particularly around people health and planetary health as well. It's nice to see that sort of as you say, Angela, how interwoven they are. Have you got any recommendations in terms of free resources for our listeners? I would love to point people towards a resource that we developed in light of the pandemic entitled the COVID-19 Teacher Training. 
you can find it on our website if you type in teachers.wellcertified.com. It is a free resource that talks about these strategies that I've recommended on how to improve the situation within your classroom, whether that's increasing the supply of outdoor air or thinking about spaces differently, trying to move outdoors where that's safe and appropriate to do so. So that would be the first and foremost resource. And then everything else, including the well-building standard, is free and available to use online. You can build a scorecard to start to do that assessment of where your facility stacks up against some of these recommended best practices. And then if anyone has additional questions, certainly reach out, get in touch with us. Marcus, do you have any recommendations for uh, listeners who might want to find out more? Well, if I may just add, I've actually looked at this already myself, what Angela just alluded to, to the resources and the teacher training. And all I can say is I, I think they're highly recommendable and there's a fantastic set of resources that the Wellbuilding Institute has got there. So I, I can only highly recommend those interested listeners to, to go and look those up and dive a little deeper into the topic. Thank you both very much for your time today. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by SAS International. Tune in for episode three, where we will conclude the discussion on well-being in the education sector.